This is Near Dark Radio. 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 Hello, folks, and welcome back to Near Dark Radio. This is your host, John Gower, and I am joined remotely today from uh, New Orleans by Dr. Thomas Klingler. Dr. Klingler is the Director of Linguistics and Associate Professor of French at Tulane University and has done extensive studies of the French dialects of Louisiana. Dr. Klingler, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, John. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. I, uh, I came across your work almost a decade ago when I was researching the French languages of the Louisiana regions, and that is what I wanted to talk to you about today, explore the Creole and Cajun populations and languages of the region. And now that I've thrown out those two problematic words, Cajun and Creole, how about we unpack those? Um, you wrote a fantastic book called If I Could Turn My Tongue Like That, emphasis yours. And it was one of the books I used for a research project on the Cajun and Creole languages of the Louisiana region. So uh, you are the expert. Let's unpack those terms first in terms of what sort of populations, what kind of people Cajun and Creole refer to. Well, yeah, that's one of the, the tricky things in dealing with these terms is that Cajun and Creole are used both as labels for people of a certain ethnic group or <clears throat> what we could call ethnonyms and as labels for, uh, for language um, or glossonyms. And the overlap is not perfect, but the fact that people who call themselves Creole if they speak some variety of French or French-related variety, tend to call that Creole. And people who call themselves Cajun call whatever type of French they speak Cajun very often. Complicates things because as it happens, Creole as it's used today in Louisiana, not historically, but today, tends to refer to people of mixed racial background or people who identify as black or African-American. And Cajun generally uh, applies to white people. And the people who call themselves Creole, if they speak some type of French, tend to call that Creole. And in many cases, it's what linguists would refer to as Louisiana Creole. But in many cases, it's not. It's something closer to, uh, to what their Cajun neighbors speak, a kind of uh, a, a French dialect, if you like, that is typically called Cajun French by, by many people. Uh, I prefer the label Louisiana French precisely because of the confusion that arises in the use of these labels. And by the same token, there are some uh, people who call themselves Cajun, and they speak something that linguistically is closer to what I would call Louisiana Creole. And they might call it Creole, but often because they call themselves Cajun, they might refer to it as Cajun French. So the labels are actually very slippery. And uh, as a linguist, I am very interested in how people use these labels. But of course, my main concern has always been to document and study what people actually speak. And so the simple fact that someone says, well, I speak Creole, uh, for me, doesn't nec necessarily or automatically mean that it's going to be the Louisiana Creole that I might be interested in uh, in looking at. Sometimes, as I mentioned, it's, it's very close to what other people typically call Cajun French. But again, because of the close association between ethnonym and glossonym, people who call themselves Creole will call their type of French uh, Creole, people who call themselves Cajun, very often call their type of French Cajun. And then it's up to the linguist to, to look at it more carefully and see where where this fits in linguistically. Sure, sure. Yeah. So you, the Cajun people, if we can go ahead and let people know, because a lot of people just don't know the difference between Cajun and Creole in 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 terms of what populations they're referring to, but also what sorts of language they're referring to. Uh, the Cajun people are the descendants of the Acadians, who were the French settlers of eastern Canada, 
back in the day who were expulsed by the British in the mid-18th century, around 1755, and they were essentially refugees who settled in the Louisiana region. Well, I was just going to say, let's let's stick with Cajun for a moment, and I would say the way you presented it, the Cajuns are the descendants of the Acadian refugees, is one of the primary myths, I would say, surrounding the situation of French in Louisiana that, that I've worked to um, to try to clarify and I say I say myth not because it's not true but because it's partially true but also because then it uh, takes on uh, an outsized importance in people's understanding of the situation of French in Louisiana and the situation of the people called called Cajun. So, so why do I say it's only partially true? It, certainly, if we talk about Cajuns today in Louisiana, it's because there was this group called the Acadians, les Acadiens, uh, or then later Cajuns, who came from Nova Scotia after what was called Le Grand Dérangement, in 1755, when the British kicked out that French uh, population, and after wandering uh, around in the northern American colonies and sometimes back to France, some of them in England, for a number of years, somewhere between 2,600 and 3,000 of these Acadian refugees made their way to Louisiana, beginning in about 1764 and coming in several waves until 1785. And they were Acadians, and, and that's certainly the origin of the word. Cajun that we have in Louisiana today. The problem is that over the years, um, two major things happened. One was that the uh, the Acadians, the Acadian population in Louisiana, mixed with the what was then called the Creole population. Creole, without a particular racial connotation of that time, Creole simply meant uh, born in the colony, what was originally the Louisiana colony, but of a different origin. So uh, enslaved people could be called Creoles if, if their, their origins were African, but they were born in Louisiana. Uh, but also people of European origin uh, who were born in Louisiana were called Creoles. And so, so it was a, there was this cultural mixing. And at the same time, when uh, more and more Americans, uh, after the sale of Louisiana to the United States, after Louisiana became a state, more and more Americans started coming into Louisiana and not understanding the, the complex ethnic situation here, interpreted Cajun as referring to any poor white French speaker, basically. And so the term expanded semantically to encompass many people who were not at all of Acadian origin. And when you, when you take that semantic expansion due to kind of a, a misunderstanding on the part of the Americans who came in, English-speaking Americans who came in, with the actual ethnic mixing that was going on among people of Acadian origin and the quote-unquote Creoles who were of either direct French origin or came from, uh, from Quebec, um, the, the word took on a specific meaning in Louisiana, and it, it did not any longer necessarily refer specifically to people of Acadian origin. And yet today, people know enough, just enough about history to, to know about the Acadian origins of the word Cajun and therefore assume, oh, well, today's Cajuns are the descendants of the Acadians. But that's only partially true, and I, I would say um, very partially true, because the Acadians were a minority in a majority French-speaking uh, area when they came to Louisiana, and they didn't simply eclipse the French-speaking groups that were already here. They, they merged with them, in a sense. But for reasons that I just explained, partly having to do with Americans coming in and misunderstanding the, the label Cajun, um, that label Cajun came to encompass everybody, even though the Acadian portion of that is probably not a majority portion of either the, um, the genetic background of today's Cajuns or the linguistic origins of what is today often referred to as, as Cajun French, because the Acadian French, the French of the Acadian refugees, was only one component that went into it. It certainly had an influence on the development of French in Louisiana, but I don't think it 
took over. <laughs> it didn't simply replace the French that was, uh, that was spoken in Louisiana when the Acadians arrived. And it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that when the Acadians moved down, they were not necessarily coming into, say, New Orleans proper. They were settling in more rural areas around, um, you know, in the, in the Louisiana region and were not, you, you, you know, you say they, they were intermingling, intermarrying with the Creole population that was there. The white Creole population comprised a lot of landed gentry, business people, uh, merchants, um, plantation owners, and they didn't, they didn't necessarily mix with the Acadians. Yeah, you're certainly right that the Acadians, though they may have come through New Orleans, generally did not stay in New Orleans. They uh, they were settled. I say were settled because often the the what at the time was the Spanish government told them where they uh, they could and couldn't go. They uh, tended to settle in re- uh, rural regions, either along the Mississippi or west of the Atchafalaya, uh, or to some degree later in uh, Lafouche Parish, south of, uh, of New Orleans. But generally in rural areas, you're right. But there were also, uh, and initially, I think it's probably true that initially the Acadians were very cohesive and tended to keep to themselves. But as time went on, they did mingle with the, uh, the, the Creole, the white Creole population. And th- though initially that would not have been the, uh, the Creole elite, the wealthy Creoles, there were also a lot of, of poor French-speaking people of European uh, origin, not Acadians, who would have fallen into the, to the, that class of Creoles, not socioeconomic class, but that ethnic group of Creoles, and so uh, and who had a similar social status to socioeconomic status to the Acadian refugees. And so there was a lot of mixing that, that did go on at that level. And then many Acadians became financially successful and also married into the elite. So there was eventually some mixing with the elite as well. The Acadians were not exclusively and did not remain exclusively poor, but initially when they arrived, they they were fairly destitute. That's true. Yeah, which kind of explains the interpretation over the years or the, um, you know, the assumptions over the years that, oh yes, the poor whites are the Cajuns and the mixed race and European descent are the Creoles. Um, Let's move on to the Creoles. The Creoles are a mixed bag (laughs) in more ways than one. Well, yeah. Um, So, so as I, as I mentioned, go ahead. If you have something else to add, go. Oh no, I was just going to say the, the new Orleans kind of, it didn't start off as a penal colony necessarily, but a lot of the original uh, European born French speakers in the region were criminals, prostitutes, uh, different, you know, lower coming from the lower rungs of French society in the same sense that Australia. Yeah, largely. Yeah. yeah, Although Australia was uh, properly speaking, a penal colony, Louisiana was not, I mean, people didn't, didn't come here to be thrown into prison. uh, But France did get rid of some criminals uh, by sending them to Louisiana. Uh, There were also a lot of soldiers uh, who were here, who were of of lower socioeconomic classes. There were administrators who were more of the elite. But yeah, the the majority of French-speaking settlers here uh, were of modest social and socioeconomic origin. That's true. And as I mentioned earlier, historically, the term Creole referred to people of an origin outside of the colony, but who were born in the colony. So whose parents or grandparents came from somewhere else, but they were born here. So that could apply to Africans. And it, it was a um, an important distinction in the slave society. A slave born in in the colony was called a Creole slave and had a higher value because they were already culturally culturally assimilated and linguistically assimilated than than an enslaved person brought directly from Africa. And it also referred to people of European origin who were born in the colony. So it didn't refer to a special, specific racial group. Um, but then in the course of the 19th century, things began to change. Again, the, the historical explanation for this is typically, uh, typically has to do with 
Americans coming in and not understanding the complexity of Louisiana society and assuming that the label Creole always meant uh, someone at least partially of African origin. And since there was a white Creole elite uh, in Louisiana at that time uh, who was extremely, uh, who were extremely afraid of that interpretation, there was this move to try to claim that Creole could only and had only ever meant people of pure uh, white race, which of course wasn't historically true. But that battle was lost, and in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, the label Creole came increasingly to be understood to refer to uh, either black people or people of, of mixed race. And there are certainly still today uh, white people who call themselves Creole, but in my uh, in my own field work, very often I'd come across elderly people who didn't tend to use that label today, or they would only in in private. They use a label Creole. White people who would la- use the label Creole to apply it to themselves because they knew that it was generally understood to refer to to people of mixed race or or um, African Americans. But they would tell me in private, well, you know, when when I was growing up, we were we were Creoles. That's what we called ourselves. And the label Cajun was an insult. <laughs> Cajun was considered to be uh, basically poor white trash, uh, French speaking. Yeah, the, the Peckerwoods. Yeah. So, um, so today, uh, Creole remains very complicated because there's also a younger generation of whites who are once again embracing the label Creole, not at all claiming that it applies exclusively to them. They have a very broad view of it, but once again saying, well, my origins are Creole. I don't shy away from that label. So we have this situation where I'd say it's still generally understood and most commonly used the label Creole as an ethnonym to refer to uh, people of African origin, at least in part, but not exclusively. And so things are, are changing. But be, because of that, so for, for a long time, it had been used to refer primarily to people of color. And so people who spoke some French or French-related variety, what I would call Louisiana Creole, um, and who were black or of mixed race would call themselves Creole, and they would call what they spoke Creole. Uh, But as I mentioned earlier, uh, very often in in my work, I've gone to interview self-identified Creoles, and what I have often found is what they speak is what I would call Louisiana French, the same thing that many Cajuns speak, and not actually what I would call, uh, linguistically speaking, Louisiana Creole. Many do speak Louisiana Creole, but but many don't as well. So it's a very complex linguistic and ethnic sit- situation, and there's not not a perfect or clear overlap between ethnic group and language spoken. Sure, sure. Well, let's talk about the languages then. Um, you mentioned Louisiana Creole. How did that develop? Um, you, you, in your book, you give a several different, uh, hypotheses of how Louisiana Creole developed, um, basically as a sort of approximation by the slaves of the French of their masters and approximations of approximations as slaves began being imported and learning the Creole from other slaves that were already on plantations. Give us right. So my view, yeah, my, my view of Creole origins in general, I mean, there are various uh, theories as to how Creoles develop. I see the development of Creole languages as a, uh, a kind of second language learning in a very specific sociolinguistic set- setting of, um, of slave colonies. In most cases, a large number of people, generally of African origin, enslaved people, come into contact with uh, the the colonial language of power, and in the case of Louisiana, that was French. There is no formal learning of that language. There's a limited access to it, uh, and the the end result of that is a language variety that draws very heavily from uh, French in the case of Louisiana, but is structurally quite different from it. And my view of how that happens is very close to that of uh, the the 
uh, recently deceased, unfortunately, French linguist uh, Robert Chaudenson, who saw Creole languages as arising through uh, a process of kind of approximation squared, if you like, that, uh, that enslaved people who come into contact with, um, with French begin to speak, as you would any time you're learning a second language, approximate varieties of that French. And then as new slaves are brought from Africa, their contact increasingly, and as a, as a, as a plantation society grows up, because I, I should back up a little bit and say in the, in the initial days of, of most colonies in Louisiana, was similar, though not ex exactly like other colonies. Louisiana actually had um, fairly large plantations early on, uh, but nevertheless, I would say in many cases, there was actually fairly close contact between many of the enslaved people and the French colonists. Uh, many colonists only owned a, a few slaves and in many cases worked side by side with them in the fields because they, they couldn't afford uh, the, to, to simply uh, live a life of leisure on, the, uh, on their own. They didn't have enough slaves to do that. And in those cases, there was very direct contact, linguistic and cultural contact between the slaves and the, and the colonists and so the slaves can be assumed to have uh, learned, uh, had, had a lot of direct exposure to the French, even though they were speaking approximate varieties of it. But then as the plantations grew larger and more slaves were, were brought in, the direct contact between the newly arrived enslaved people was no longer with the European colonists, but increasingly with the Creole slaves, the slaves who had been born in the colony or uh, had been here for a long time, who spoke French, but probably some approximate varieties of that. And so when the, when the newly arrived Africans come in, they are speaking, then they, they, they begin to learn approximations of the already approximate varieties of uh, of French spoken by the enslaved people who had been in the colony for a long time or who were born in the colony. And it's through that process of approximation of, of approximations that you get a, a new linguistic variety that arises. And I think that's a, a pretty good scenario for explaining the development of Louisiana Creole. So my view is that Louisiana Creole is indigenous to Louisiana, that the language did arise here through contact between uh, colonists and enslaved Africans. But it's not the only view. Many other people, not many perhaps, but other people have claimed before me that Louisiana Creole was imported to the colony from the Caribbean and more specifically from Haiti. And it's certainly true that Louisiana Creole bears a lot of resemblances to the Caribbean Creoles in general, but more specifically to Haiti. Um, for instance, just one small example is the verb to have, which in French is avoir, in Louisiana Creole is gain. And in earlier Louisiana Creole texts, you get gain or you get gain from French gagner. Uh, and in, in uh, Haitian Creole, that is also the verb gain or gagner for, uh, for to have. Whereas in most of the other Caribbean Creoles, it's a tini, uh, it's another verb, it's not gain. So there is a certain affinity with, um, with Haitian Creole. The, I mean, one of the hypotheses is that after the Haitian Revolution, the refugees from Haiti came to many of them came to Louisiana to settle. But those would not be the enslaved people. Those would have been the European colonists. It's more complicated than that because, um, because it, it's true. After the, the Haitian Revolution, about 10,000 inhabitants of what before it became Haiti was called Saint-Domingue, the colony of Saint-Domingue, came to Louisiana. They came via Cuba. They first went to Cuba, then the, the Spanish kicked them out of Cuba, and they, and they came to Louisiana. And so there were, there were around 10,000 of them, and about a third were whites, about a third were free people of color, and about a third were enslaved people. Therefore, owned by primarily the whites. I'm not sure how many free people of color brought slaves with them, but certainly a lot of the white planters who who sought refuge in Louisiana did bring uh, bring slaves with them. And there's no question that there was a massive influx of not just French but also Creole speakers to Louisiana. So it's 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 clear 
that Louisiana, that um, Haitian Creole must have had a, a, a significant influence on the linguistic situation in Louisiana and, and surely had some influence on the development of Louisiana Creole. But, but my research has shown that there existed a language recognized as Creole, the label Creole is used to apply for it, and we even have a very brief summary grammatical description of that Creole that dates from the very early 19th century, which was before the influx of the refugees from the Haitian Revolution, because those people come primarily in 1809 and 1810. And we have a we have testimony from uh, the trial of uh, of some slaves who were accused of having fomented a slave revolt, where mention is made of uh, of a Creole language spoken by the slaves, but also by some of the whites in Point Capi Parish specifically. So when we look at the historical record, even though it's quite clear that that a lot of Haitian Creoles Creole speakers came to Louisiana and almost certainly had a very significant influence on the, the linguistic developments here. Uh, it's pretty clear that there existed a Creole language in Louisiana before the, the, um, these people arrived. And that's one of the reasons that I maintain that Louisiana Creole is an ind indigenous development, ultimately an indigenous development, even if it later then uh, certainly had some influence from Haitian Creole. And so that um, indigenous Creole to Louisiana still shares similarities with Haitian Creole? That, that's a very good question because the, the traces we have of the Creole that existed in Louisiana before the arrival of um, the former residents of Saint-Domingue, Haiti, in Louisiana, those traces are, are really too cursory to say much about what that Creole looked like. It's enough to say, yes, this looks like a Creole language. They call it Creole. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to trace the historical developments because we have so little in <clears throat> excuse me so little information about what Louisiana Creole looked like before the arrival of the Haitians so while it seems pretty clear that uh, Haitian Creole did have a pretty significant influence on Louisiana Creole it's a little hard to tell just how um, how significant that influence was because we don't know enough about what Creole looked like before they came what we can say is that um, despite the similarities between Louisiana Creole and Haitian Creole, there are also significant differences. And those differences um, are, are part, I would say, part of the argument for uh, claiming that Louisiana Creole did not simply uh, arise as, a, as an offshoot of Haitian Creole, that it was not, that Haitian Creole was not simply imported to Louisiana, and that was the origin of Louisiana Creole. There are enough differences to, um, to hypothesize that Louisiana Creole had its own origins, was later then influenced by Haitian Creole. Okay, yeah. And I asked that question because one of the theories you mentioned in your book, uh, several people espoused that the the similarities between different Creoles around the world um, in in French colonial situations, the hypothesis is that a certain Creole developed in Africa in the slave trading um, establishments there that was then exported to all these different points around the globe. Yeah, that's a famous uh, theory of monogenesis, that there was a single origin of the Creole languages or, or a modified version of that as limited monogenesis, because originally monogenesis applied to all Creoles, like all Creole languages of the world, Jamaican Creole, whether it be an English-based Creole or a French-based Creole or um, uh, Portuguese-based Creole, they all grew from out of the same uh, original source. Um, and then limited monogenesis is, well, the French Creoles all come from the same source, and maybe the English Creoles all come from the same source. And yeah, I do, I do argue against that. I, I think the evidence is rather slim for it. It's true that, that the reason the monogenetic theory uh, arose in the first place is because linguists notice these kind of uncanny structural similarities among all the different Creoles of the world. For instance, they tended to lack 
copular verbs, the linking verbs like to be, like instead of, um, what can I say, the red, the table is red, uh, you would say the table red, right, with no, with no verb to be in there to link them. And, and, and that, that tends to be a feature of Creole languages throughout the world. And there are many others like that. But, but as linguists started looking closer at the individual Creoles and uncovering more details and getting more detailed descriptions of Creole languages, they realized that the, um, the similarities were perhaps not so thoroughgoing as they thought. There were an awful lot of differences among the Creole languages and even among the, the Creole languages of the same lexical base, so the French Creoles, the English Creoles, etc. Um, there were many similarities, but there were also many, many differences. And the similarities could be explained in, by other means. They could ex- be explained, for instance, by universal processes of language contact and language learning, language learning in situations of intense language contact, but also sometimes by the similarities in the base, the lexical base language, similarities in the way French, for instance, was probably spoken in the colonies, which was very different from what we think of as standard French today. We we mentioned earlier that the colonists in Louisiana were largely of modest socioeconomic background, and uh, and not the elite. Uh, they were from different regions of France or even Quebec, so they didn't necessarily speak standard French. They very likely did not speak standard French. So if you look at the kind of French that was spoken in the colonies, um, you can f- you can find. Uh, some of the sources or the sources for for some of the the particularities of um, Louisiana Creole, but also other French Creoles that distinguished the Creoles from standard French, a lot of those those elements you can trace to the type of French that was likely spoken um, in the colonies. So the, the the monogenetic theory, even though some people still believe in it, uh, in its limited form applied to, say, just the French Creoles uh, or just the English Creoles, um, even though it's, uh, there are still people who, who believe in it to some extent, it's, um, it's been thrown into question uh, pretty seriously by, by more recent studies. And, uh, but I'm not dogmatic about it. I, I don't feel terribly strongly about it. It's the point of view I defend based on the, the research that I've done and the evidence I've been able to find. But I'll readily admit that the uh, there's a lot of evidence that's lacking um that we it would be nice to have a much clearer record of the development of louisiana creole so i certainly leave open the possibility that i'm wrong but but based on the evidence i've been able to find that's that's my view well and so let's let's talk about the disappearance of this these different french dialects which you know up until the 19th century were the dominant language spoken in louisiana um you mentioned the influx of Americans during the late 18th, 19th century. What, what, what major factors contributed to the um, nearly er- the eradication of the French languages in Louisiana? Right. Well, it's interesting that you say they were the, the, the dominant varieties spoken here, because of course, if, if we're thinking of, uh, of Cajun or what I prefer to call Louisiana French because of the, difficulties with the label Cajun that I, that I talked about earlier. If you we're talking about Louisiana French, as we think of it today and Louisiana Creole, of course, Louisiana French was perhaps dominant demographically in terms of number of speakers, but neither, neither Louisiana French nor Creole were ever dominant in terms of power, right? They were always, they were always stigmatized non-standard languages. And what, would have been to, to the extent there was a prestige language in Louisiana. It was very, it was for a long time French or standard French, if you like, but, but certainly not the, the type of regional French that, um, that is Louisiana French is spoken today. And that's, that's important to point out because um, it, that meant that when French broadly defined, uh, encompassing, and, and perhaps pr- primarily even what we think of as standard French. When when that variety began to decline, it put uh, 
Louisiana French or, or regional Louisiana French, if you like, and Louisiana Creole in a in an even more precarious situation because they had always been looked down upon as sort of corrupt language varieties, not real language varieties. But let's let's start with French more broadly defined. Um, when did it begin to decline? Well, it's interesting that L- Louisiana. Uh, as you know, became a Spanish colony officially in 1762, um, but the Spaniards didn't take uh, real possession of it until 1766. And then they kept it until 1800, and it reverted very briefly back to French hands. Um, And then in 1803, Napoleon sold Louisiana to the United States, and the rest is history. But even during the Spanish colonial period, when Spanish was the language of administration, French was massively uh, dominant demographically. And the Spanish never populated the colony with any significant number of, of Spanish speakers. So French remained the, the primary language of, of communication. And then, oddly, after the Louisiana Purchase, that's when we can see, between the Louisiana Purchase and the Civil War, essentially, we can see really the, the high point of French in Louisiana. Strangely enough, why? Largely because of the influx of the French and Creole speakers from Saint-Domingue, Haiti, in 1809 and 1810 that I talked about earlier. That that dramatically increased the francophone and, to some extent, creolophone. But let's focus on the francophone. That dramatically increased the francophone population of Louisiana. Uh, many of the refugees from Saint-Domingue were highly educated and were involved in cultural s- spheres, in writing literature, in opera, in uh, um, newspapers. So newspapers in New Orleans were founded by these refugees. They wrote books. They, they founded operas. Uh, it, if I remember correctly, New Orleans had the first opera house in the United States? I think that's true. I, I can't confirm it, but I believe you're right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. And if I'm not mistaken, I, 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 I would have to check to be sure, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe that opera house was founded by a former inhabitant of Saint-Domingue, Haiti, who came to uh, to New Orleans. Um, not absolutely positive, but I know that they were largely responsible for this sort of flourishing of a francophone culture in Louisiana. And and so that's sort of ironic because Louisiana was already American at that time. It became a territory in 1803 and then a state in 1812. And yet it remained, French, I would say, remained the most prestigious language in most domains and largely the dominant language in political and even economic spheres. That came to a crashing halt after the Civil War. The economy of the South was, uh, was defeated. Interestingly, the, um, the Francophone elite uh, had largely been aligned with the Confederacy. And so during Reconstruction, uh, that did not help the French cause at all. And so you have both political pressures and, of course, economic pressures because <clears throat> because there are increasing numbers of quote-unquote Americans, English-speaking Americans, coming to Louisiana, increasingly taking over the reins of the economy, and then even the political situation. And so French became came to be um, increasingly marginalized uh, during that time, uh, both because of the, the political clout that the French elite lost, but also because the French speakers were increasingly receding from the economic scene. And increasingly, it was Anglos from the north, or at least from outside of Louisiana, who uh, who were taking control of the Louisiana economy. Um, so, you know, interestingly, it wasn't initially the political situation that changed things, because even though Louisiana was an American territory, then an American state, French continued for, for some decades to be dominant in many spheres. But it really had to do with economics, culture, and then the politics post-Civil War that brought about the decline. If I remember correctly from my research, like you said, the English, after the Civil War, the English influence 
took over the political and economic center, um, New Orleans, the cities, and the the standard French of the elite class was run out, became to be viewed, well, lost a ton of prestige, but the rural and lower class Creole and Cajun, those survived on because they were not necessarily plugged into the political and economic centers. Yeah, that's right, because the uh, the Francophone elite were among the first to switch to English because they had access to it, they had access to education, and they had a, an economic interest in doing so. And so French became increasingly restricted to more rural areas where French speakers remained dominant because there weren't as many Anglophones who went to the rural areas as to the cities. Uh, and, and where, you know, in, a, in an, an agrarian economy, the pressure to switch to English was not as great as in an urban economy. So that's, that's very much true. And uh, even though it's, I think it's often been the, the degree of isolation that has been claimed for uh, f- rural Francophone Louisiana is a bit exaggerated. The, the, these rural areas were always in communication with other parts of the state and other parts of the country. But it's true that um, the French speakers there could maintain their Francophone community uh, for a much longer period. And then in 1916, Education became obligatory in Louisiana, so all children had to start going to school, and education was largely in English, of course. There were still schools teaching in French, but they were a minority. And then five years after that, in 1921, the uh, the Louisiana Constitution declared English to be the only allowed language of instruction. It's important to point that out. It doesn't mean that French was outlawed. Uh, it doesn't mean that French could not be taught. It does not mean, did not mean that French could not be spoken, but it meant that teachers had to teach in English in public schools in Louisiana. Private schools could continue teaching in French, and a few did, especially Catholic schools. But largely, it was at that point that... Uh, French-speaking and Creole-speaking children in Louisiana were, first of all, obligated to go to school as of 1916, and then if they were going to public school, that education had to be in English. And many of them arrived in school never having spoken a word of English. Everybody at home spoke only French or only Creole. And then they arrive in school and uh, they were sometimes punished for speaking French, even though they really had no option. Uh, and it was for, there was a traumatic experience for, for a whole generation of monolingual Francophones who, uh, who arrived in school and were, were told that their language could not be spoken and was not worthy of being spoken. Um, and again, then I'll bring up the, the issue of the fact that, that these people were largely not speakers of a more standard-like French, but of a, of a highly regional version of French, Louisiana French, often called Cajun or Creole, which were, they were often told was not even real French. It wasn't even a real language. And in any case, what they had to speak was English. So this generation of, uh, of French speakers who, who were traumatized by this experience were determined that their children shouldn't go through the same thing. And they, they bought into the notion that uh, to succeed in society, to better themselves, they had to learn English, which was true, by the way. Of course, they, they really needed to. English was the dominant language. You, you really had to speak it to get along. But unfortunately, what they what they didn't necessarily envision was the possibility of bilingualism. And so they chose, they thought it was best for their children if French ceased to be spoken in the home so that their children would arrive in school already speaking English. And the best way for that to happen was, was for them to only speak English. And so there increasingly came to be children growing up in, in households where the parents had been um, native speakers and, and for a long time monolingual speakers of French, but they then switched to English. The children didn't learn French at home so that they would go to school speaking English. And, and that's a crucial moment in the decline of both French and Creole in, in Louisiana. And so later, 
you have a movement to revive French, but by that time, you've got a whole generation of, of people of childbearing age who, whose parents spoke French, whose grandparents spoke French, but they don't, and they can't raise their children in French. They don't have that option, even though many times they'd like to. They regret they didn't grow up speaking it. They wish their parents had spoken it to them, but now they're not really in a position to pass the language on to their own children. Well, and that's interesting that, and somewhat coincidental, because my great-grandparents came here from Lebanon and at, at about the same time, early 20th century, and they forbade Arabic to be spoken in their homes because they wanted their children, obviously, to be able to uh, be successful in school, um, interact with the English-speaking population, and... For that reason, my grandparents, and certainly their my parents, my parents' generation, ended up with no Arabic language skills whatsoever. Yeah, and it's a real shame. It's uh, perhaps more understandable in the case of uh, uh, an immigrant group who who arrives knowing that they're <clears throat> they're coming into a country, uh, they're coming into a new country that is not. They'll make it their own now, but it wasn't originally, and uh, and and they're prepared to assimilate to the dominant culture and the dominant language. Of course, in the case of French in Louisiana, it was a little different because this was a, a population that, of course, arose through colonization, through French colonization of uh, of the Louisiana region but was then itself, in a sense, colonized by an outside, what was originally an outside power, the United States, this English-speaking uh, power. And, and so, really, English was, in a sense, the invasive language here, and yet people decided that it, they nevertheless had to give up the, the language that was, um, that was the language of their community before the Anglophones arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's completely different, and it's it's all, like like I said, it's almost just coincidental that they occurred at the same time. Um, but I, I mean, my impression is that they're like in you know in this time, the early twentieth century, mid twentieth century, the idea of monolingualism that you mentioned was the dominant philosophy for you know whether people were conscious of it or not. It was we'll speak English, the nation speaks English done. There's no, there's no room for other languages in people's heads almost. There was, I mean, if, if I'm correct, there was this notion that having two languages in your head was actually detrimental to your ability to learn. Yeah, many people believed that, and some people still believe it today. Uh, when, of course, we know <laughs> yeah, sure. through, we we know through studies that the contrary is true. Bilingualism, uh, multilingualism has uh, has all kinds of cognitive advantages, but but that wasn't um, that wasn't seen as being the case in the early to mid twentieth century, certainly, and and of course. There were and, and continue to be French-speaking families who remained very proud of their Francophone heritage and insisted on on continuing to, to use the language. Um, but I, I'll go back to the to the issue of prestige and 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 norm. the The fact is that the the populations we're talking about largely spoke non-standard varieties of French or Louisiana Creole, and they were often told so. They were told that what they spoke was a corruption of French, wasn't a real language. So, you know, if, if they had spoken a variety of French that was recognized and considered to be prestigious, that might have been one thing. They might have had a little more incentive to maintain it, but they were led to believe that the, what they spoke wasn't real French, and all, in many cases wasn't even a real language. And I, I, to, I can contra contrast that situation with the situation of a, one of the, the last speakers of French in New Orleans, a native speaker uh, of French in New Orleans that I met some years ago, who still spoke French, and it was a very standard-like French. It, it wasn't what I call Louisiana French. It certainly wasn't Louisiana Creole. It was almost indistinguishable, except for a few words here and there and a few elements of pronunciation from, from the, the French that, um, that you learn in school. Um, and why did she grow up speaking it? Well, because I would say it was a prestigious variety of French, and she grew up in New Orleans 
in the household of her grandfather. And her grandfather was uh, of this old generation, kind of a legendary generation of, of white New Orleans Creoles who considered Americans and English to be vulgar and English to be a vulgar language. And therefore, he forbade the use of English in his house. English was a forbidden language in the house. But she grew up in that house until she was five years old. And that is why she is a native speaker. And one of the last, I mean, when I interviewed her some years ago, I think she was 89 years old. So, um, that, that was a case of someone at the same time, other French speakers were massively abandoning their language, someone who insisted on speaking French and only French. English was not allowed. But I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he was in New Orleans. He was uh, a member of the old urban Creole elite and spoke a type of French that is very close to standard French and that he was very proud of. And the people in the rural areas who, who constituted the, the, the masses of French speakers at the time spoke something different that was highly stigmatized. They themselves were socially in a, uh, a stigmatized class and their language was was not looked upon with value, uh, even by other French speakers to a large extent. And that, of course, contributes a lot to the loss of the language. Yeah. And it, you, it, you, you, you've, you've laid out a very complex situation in which languages encounter one another uh, across class, across social distinction, across race, across, um, you know, the different levels of prestige. And one of the other books that I came across at the same time I came across yours was a, um, a book by the French linguist, um, Louis-Jean Calvé, uh, and his book is called Language Wars, Guerre de Langage in French. And he views language as a sort of mask for a lot of different other socioeconomic, um, political factors going on in society. And he views the study of linguistics, he, he thinks the study of linguistics should be purely sociolinguistic, meaning that studying language in and of itself in an abstract sense is a little bit useless unless, if, we, if we don't also study it in its socioeconomic situation. Right. Yeah. He wrote that book uh, in the in the 80s at a time when there was still a really uh, strenuous debate, uh, especially in France, perhaps at that time, but but still to some degree in the United States uh, between theoretical theoretical linguists and sociolinguists. Sociolinguistics was still a re relatively young field and uh, Chomsky and linguistics, which was dominant at the time, um, was only interested in uh, the structure of language and did not think that um, that social considerations were uh, were important. Chomsky, as far as I know to this day, maintains that that view. He certainly did for a long time, and and so uh, Calvé's book La Guerre des Langues. Um, was situated kind of within that that debate. Uh, it was still going on. Today, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who still who still believe that you can study a language without without paying attention to its social context. But sociolinguistics is a, a, a very much a, a solidly implanted and accepted field within the United States, but also uh, within France. So I think um, many, many, if not a majority majority of linguists today would would agree with with Calvé that it's impossible of course linguistics is not just sociolinguistics so there's there are cognitive elements to language there are structural elements to language but i think most people would agree uh, with what at the time was not revolutionary but still con a controversial claim that you could not do linguistics without paying attention to uh, the social context without paying attention to um, issues of, uh, of, of power, class, um, social group, uh, etc. So I think, you know, that's the context out of which that, um, that, 
that book arose. And you know, certainly you can you can see that, and Calvé sees the 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 relationship between languages in that book as being largely conf- conflictual. I'm not sure it always has to be, but certainly throughout history we've seen uh, many examples of conflict, and in Louisiana. Uh, you certainly see the power relations between English and French in the rapid decline um, of French. But you also see, I think it's perhaps important to point out, the the conflict between different varieties of French because uh, as I've, I've had occasion to state a couple of times, that part of the weakness of French in Louisiana is the disappearance or the, to, to a large extent of a, of a more standard-like variety of French, which left, which left Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole kind of on their own as these varieties seen as, as corrupt and not even being uh, real language varieties. And, and even... Even within the realm of Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole, there's a, a power relationship where Louisiana Creole is seen as less prestigious than Louisiana French, which in turn is seen as less prestigious than standard French. I mean, certainly that's the historical, uh, the historical context, the historical situation. And I think in many people's minds, it, it, it still is, is that way to some degree. But I, I should note that it, to today, it's not quite that simple because today there is certainly um, a movement, not a very big one, but there's a movement particularly uh, among younger generations fr- uh, of Louisianans from, from originally French-speaking backgrounds who want to reclaim that heritage and who are very proud of Louisiana French or even Louisiana Creole. So this stigmatization and of course, this often happens once the languages are, have disappeared or almost disappeared. They no longer seem to be a, a threat to the to the dominant language in society. They suddenly take on a certain prestige, and that's certainly the case now. Uh, there there are a lot of people trying to reclaim their their Cajun or their Creole heritage or their Louisiana French heritage, if you like, and are just as proud of their uh, their if you like non-standard varieties of French as they are of. Um, of Louisiana French. Part of that, there, there are many reasons for it. I would say part of it is, um, is the music scene, Cajun music in, in particular. Um, it's interesting that, that young Cajun music groups tend to sing in French, and a lot of musicians have learned French purely for the purpose of being able to authentically sing and, and write um, Cajun music. And so the, I think the, that variety has gained a lot of prestige largely through the music. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know several groups that I listen to and learn some of their music uh, that that introduced me to the word char instead of voiture for a car. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. Before we go, I wanted to play, you have a wealth of recordings of people speaking Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole. And I wanted to play a couple of examples so that folks can hear what this what this language sounds like and if they if they're french speakers or if they've heard french they can hear the subtle differences between this flavor of french and standard french you sent me a recording of several different speakers saying the same phrase and they all say it just a little bit differently some of them even use different different (laughs) grammar uh different words Um, and so i'd like to play one of those real quick J'ai cinq piastres. Mon gain cinq piastres. Mon gain cinq piastres. J'ai cinq piastres. Mon gain cinq piastres. Mon gain cinq piastres. Mon gain cinq piastres. J'ai cinq piastres. Yeah, that was uh, several different people saying the phrase j'ai cinq piastres, which would translate as. As I have five dollars. So that's a. That that sentence contains, uh, and it's one reason I, I always ask people to translate it. It, it. it serves as a kind of a shibboleth between uh, what I tend, to, what I define as Louisiana French, and what I see as Louisiana Creole, because um, that sentence, as pronounced by a speaker of Louisiana French, as uttered by a speaker of Louisiana French, would normally be almost indistinguishable from standard French, except for the word for dollar, which in Standard French is dollar, so they just use the English word. But in Louisiana, yeah. has always been 
Pias, Pias, which is the pronunciation of Piastre. It has a, a T R uh, E S at the at the end, uh, and that has always been the word for dollar. But other than that, G G Saint Pias, and that's exactly how you would say it in standard French, other than saying G Saint Dollar. But um, in Louisiana Creole, uh, you say Mougin. Saint-Pias. So the first person singular uh-huh. pronoun, which is je in French, as well as in Louisiana French, is mot in Creole. And the verb to have is avoir in French and et, je, I have in both standard French and Louisiana French. But in Creole, it's gain. So mot gain versus je is kind of a shibboleth between Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole. So you hear both of those forms here because this is an area. These these recordings were all done in and around the town of um, of Arnoville, uh, but also Cecilia and in uh, Saint Landry and Saint Martin parishes, and that's an area where both Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole are uh, are spoken. And so we had speakers of both, um, and so you you really get a feel. Uh, a small feel for the differences between the two varieties by hearing just that sentence translated by different people. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wanted to play one more for folks. Um, this is the same, same general idea you have, I believe the same, uh, speakers as in the former recording, uh, all repeating the same phrase. And we'll play that now. Allons à la grocerie. Allons store. Allons à la grocerie. And so that is the phrase, let's go to the store or let's go to the grocery. Right. The, the English cue that we asked people to translate was, let's go to the store. And you see some interesting differences there. Uh, first of all, it, it's an imperative. Let's, right? Let's go to the store. And in standard French, uh, let's go would be allons. And that is exactly how the Louisiana French speakers say it. Allons à la grocerie, allons au magasin. Magasin means store. Grocerie is probably more specifically grocery. They decided to be a little more specific. Or or they just use the English word, which is, you know, a common, common, common feature of both Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole. There are many, many anglicisms. Even for words like uh, mag- magasin or grocerie, which, for which there are great French equivalents, right? But they you know, they, it's just so natural to use the English. So they say, some of them say store instead. So allons à la grocerie, allons au magasin, allons au store. Are, those are, are Louisiana French. Now, the Louisiana Creole speakers use allons here not, not, not to mean let's go, but simply to mean let's. It is the mark of the imperative structure. And then to go is courir. So you get allons courir à la grocerie, allons courir au store. Um, and so the allons doesn't mean let's go here. It simply means let's and go is the verb courir, which comes from French courir to run, but in Creole has taken on the meaning simply to go. And that's another difference between Louisiana French and Louisiana Creole. Louisiana, uh, in Louisiana, French courir would still mean to run, but in, in Creole, it typically means simply to go. I always thought that was a beautiful little feature of Creole languages, Creole in yeah, Louisiana, yeah. that they, they say, let's run. They, they, they <laughs> That's right. Now, some places do say aller. Some places say aller, which is just like, like French in the Vachery area along the Mississippi, for instance. Uh, I've gotten that. Uh, but in many parts of Louisiana where Creole is spoken, including Point Capi, including this area around Arnaville, Curie is, is, is the most common form. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Dr. Klingler, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, I want to leave folks with a a little clip that you sent me. Uh, a, a, a lady named Rita Marks talks in in Cajun, or uh, is she Creole or she speaking Creole or Cajun? Do you remember? Well, Rita is a, a very interesting case. Uh, Rita is a, a white woman born in Cecilia, which is a Creole speaking town. So she grew up speaking Louisiana Creole. She married a man from Arnoville, about eight miles up the road, who spoke French. And so she moved to Arnoville with him. And then she had to learn French. 
So she got to school at age of five, speaking only Creole, and then had to learn English. And then when she got married to the man from Arneville, she had to learn French. So she's really trilingual. <laughs> and, and here, uh, I believe the, the clip we're interested in is one where she's speaking French. So she switched back and forth when I interviewed her uh, between the two varieties. I, th I think because it was a formal context where she was being put on camera and on tape uh, speaking uh -huh. to people from a university, she automatically put on her best French, if you like, which is Louisiana French rather than Creole. But she certainly could speak Creole and if, if asked specifically to do so, would do it because that is her native language. But I believe the clip we're talking about here is one in where uh, it's it, what she speaks is much closer to French than to Creole. Okay. A little live action code switching there. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't think she actually switches in, in the clip except between French and English, which is, of course, extremely yes, does, typical, yeah. all varieties of French. Uh, but I don't think she switches between French and Creole in this particular clip, although elsewhere in my interview with her, she, she most certainly does. And she's very proud of um, speaking French and very proud of speaking Creole. And elsewhere in the interview, uh, she, she declares her determination to speak as she grew up speaking in Arneville, she wants to keep that kind of French, and she's very proud of it. Yeah, it sounds like it. In this clip that uh, y'all are going to hear on the way out, she is talking about how she was punished in school for speaking French, and she just couldn't keep her mouth shut. She had to. She <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. She liked to talk, and she could only she was only allowed to speak in English. But since she didn't know English, she would speak French, and she was punished for doing so. Uh, she was um, hit on her fingers, probably with a ruler. Fouetté au bout des doigts. Fouetté means literally whipped, but I, I think probably means she just means struck. Here, I'm not quite sure. Mette à genoux. She was made to kneel perhaps on rice. Sometimes that was a punishment. She doesn't specify that, but often kneeling in a corner is punishment for doing something wrong. Um, right. And then, so they, they told her, they being her, her school teachers, les maîtresses, as she says, uh, they told her, Rita, I told you not to speak French. And she says, but I couldn't help myself because she, she was a talker and French was what she wanted to talk. And really the only thing she could talk. Well, Dr. Klingler, I very much appreciate you joining us on Near Dark Radio, and I will leave you all with a little Louisiana French. Les autres nous fait des honte devant le monde parce qu'on parle les français. Toi, toi, t'es puni. Oh, tous les jours parce que je pouvais pas garder ma bouche fermée, je voulais parler, puis je parle les français. Ça fait que j'étais puni. Faut être au bout de les doigts, mettre à genoux. Les autres disaient. Rita, I told you not to speak French, but I couldn't help myself. 